The following audio is from the chapel at Fishhawk. More information about the chapel at Fishhawk is available at www.thechapelfh.org. Today we're in the book of Jonah, and we're going we're gonna to be in the last verse of chapter 1 because Jonah got swallowed by the fish last week, and we've been trying to deconstruct um, this VeggieTales picture of Jonah that we all tend to focus on and zoom in on the fish, but this passage this morning is Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish, Jonah's prayer from the pit. And, and if I'm being fully honest with you guys, um, I, I told one of the greeters today, I said, I'm having a problem because as I was preparing this message, I felt God showing me two different paths to go. So I literally, in my notes this morning, I have two different sermons. So either we can be here for an hour and a half, or I'm going to experiment on you and then experiment again on the next service. Or some of you are going to be like, I'm going to stay for the whole thing because we just love Jesus so much. So yeah, there we go. Like one person. The rest of y'all need Jesus. Uh-huh. But, but for this service, I want to look at the overarching concept of, of why God had Jonah swallowed. What was God trying to teach Jonah from the pit of the whale? And I, like many of you or all of us, really, we've been and found ourselves in a dark, dark place. Uh, and for me, um, I know, don't, like, don't discount it because of the location. My darkest moment happened um, and led me to the island of Hawaii. And I know it was the darkest moment because when I landed there, my first prayer to God when I was on the beach was, God, I don't need you to be my God. I need you to be my father. I need a dad. And then I also know it was bad because of, of where my life was taking me. I was trying to run from the ministry. I was doing the exact same thing that Jonah was doing. He got swallowed by a whale. I got to tan on the big island of Hawaii. And I, I also know it was bad because, um, because of what I was going through, because of, of uh, broken hearts and, and difficult relationship. Um, this, is, this is how bad it was. I lived up in a coffee farm area called Halualoa. And to get down to the city, you had to drive these windy roads. And on the big island, there's really just like one way, one lane each direction. And I could sing to you the entire album that year that came out from Rascal Flats and Nick Lachey, formerly of 98 Degrees. This is how you know I'm in a bad place, okay? When those are your jams, if you're here today and you're like, Rascal Flats is life, you need counseling. I'm here for you because those guys are sad. I, they, I like their music, but but they sing to the heart. Today, we, I want to help you see why God might carry you through one of those valleys, why God might, might have something like a fish swallow you up and to know that it's not his punishment of you. So we're going to read and pray and go. We're gonna, I'm going to read verse 17 of chapter 1, then I'm going to read all of chapter 2, which is 10 verses. It's Jonah's prayer from inside his pit, the fish. And the Lord appointed a great fish, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. How many? Okay, it's important for later, like when Jesus comes. Jonah 2.1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Where was he? In the belly of the fish, in the dark place, no oxygen, sitting there with, with fish guts, squid eyeballs, whatever's going on in the belly of a fish, Jonah's in that. He says, I called out, to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol. Anytime you see the word Sheol, it's referring to death. Out of the belly of death, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, 
and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Jonah's saying it's God's waves, God's billows. They passed over him. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered, I remembered vain idols. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And after this prayer, this amazing, beautiful Hebrew poetry prayer, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, we're coming to you this morning to discern why you would bring any of us into the belly of darkness, why you would bring any of us into a dark valley, why you would bring any of us to a place where we reach despair. Lord, help us to see that you love us with an everlasting love. Help us to understand the circumstances in our life and help us to know how we can pray our way out of the pits. Lord, you have taken mercy upon me as you have taken mercy upon many in this room. I ask in the name of Jesus that this morning you would magnify your grace as it is seen in this prayer of Jonah. And all God's kids said, amen. Um, I love this prayer, but it's really nothing in here that you're going to find on the inspirational verses. You know how um, Christians, people of Jesus, we, we tend to take verses we love and we, we put them on coffee cups and bumper stickers, and we forget the context. So I just need us to think about the context of this before we, we dissect it apart, because context is very, very important. If you, if you don't know what I'm saying, I'm just going to give you a very quick example that I love. This context comes up, and I don't know why it seems to be prevalent and around my life. I think it's because I've generally lived in places where there are husbands and wives. But, and it also happens because I'm a, a severe eavesdropper, okay? Um, just all cards on the table. But I've heard this phrase before when I'm sitting at coffee shops, rest in peace, cool beans. Um, too soon? Too soon? Okay. Um, I know. I, I loved it there. I gave away gift cards to new visitors, and now they're gone. I'm very broken about it, actually. Um, but I, so now I have to go to Starbucks, which is terrible. But I eavesdrop, and there's way more people to eavesdrop in at Starbucks. And I've heard this phrase, and it's usually... I'm not trying to offend anybody. It's, it's usually a couple of women that are getting together for coffee, and I'm eavesdropping. I'm like, okay, I want to find out, like, what are they, what's making life work over here? What's making life work? And I'll hear this phrase, and if you hear this one line, the context is very important. Here's the line. Two women sitting on a side of a Starbucks, and you hear one of them say, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> so you, as a responsible human, have a, uh, you have to decide, well, what are you going to do? Because she could mean, I am going to first degree murder, fill in the blank of a he. Could be a son, husband. Do I have a moral obligation now as a pastor to step in? Because that'd be an awkward conversation. Um, so I heard you guys talking and you said you're going to kill. Do I need to call 911 or? More likely, 
maybe someone got in an argument. Anyone ever said that about someone in their life? I'm going to kill them, but you weren't really going to kill them, we hope. Yeah? Okay. It could be about their son. Could be, could be that they have a male dog. And it did what one of my dogs used to always do, um, use the carpet like toilet paper and do the, the toot and scoot across the living room. I'm going to kill him. All of those things are, the context matters, right? I'm going to kill him means something very different if someone's planning a murder, if it's a dog, if it's a child they're mad at. We don't even know what's going. So, so in, this, in this story, if you just look, look at it and you don't take it into the context of what God is doing with his people, if you don't understand why the prophets exist, if you don't understand why God would put such a aching, wrenching prayer into the heart of a person while they're getting contracted by fish intestines, then all you'll do is say, you know what, what I need to do when I'm in a dark place is I pray and then the fish will vomit me out and everything will be okay. But if you miss the depth of what is going on here. And, and, and it's a rhythm in Scripture. The, the rhythm is that everything starts good. And then Adam and Eve fail miserably. And they're kicked out of the garden. And it's in a low point. And then God finds for himself a people in Abraham. And he says, you're going to be my people. You're going to be more than the stars. And everything is really good. And then all of a sudden, the, the Hebrews find themselves getting enslaved in Egypt because they denied God's ways. They denied God's principles. And they were in slavery. And it's another low point. And then God frees them with ten plagues and his mighty hand of power, and they get the law. And we think now they've got, they've got rules to keep them in line because that's what rules do, keep people in line. And they fail, and they go to a low point. And, and this is the pattern. The pattern in Scripture is high points to low points, and it's really it's one giant zigzag until we get to Christ because these prophets now are pointing to something greater. The prophets are saying there is something greater coming. If you obey the Lord, it will go well. But don't worry because God is going to make a way. You cannot do this on your own. This was Jonah's one job. He was to go to some place, Nineveh, and say, repent or God will destroy you. He had one job and he ran from it. And because of that, we get this amazing prayer. This prayer that teaches us uh, three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at what is God's grace in this prayer. How do you receive the grace of God? And how do you know that you have this grace? Grace is a word we're addicted to at the chapel. It's on my wrist. Grace right here is getting what you do not deserve. Grace is the favor of God. It's the free gift. It means to be let into a place that you don't deserve to be. Grace is favor given to you, and God has no obligation to do so. He does so because he loves you and me. I, I, love, I love in verse 6. In verse 6, it talks about um, going down, going down at the roots of the mountains, down into the land whose bars were closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. This is what grace is, God bringing your life up from the pit. Grace is not you clawing your way out of the pit. Grace is not you designing a ladder to climb out of the pit. Grace is God saying, I see the place that you're in, and I'm going to bring you from it. In the pit that you might be in today, you may think is the hardest place in your life. You may be in the toughest spot of your marriage or a place of work or a broken relationship or finances in ruins. 
that is not the great pit that is plaguing you today. The great pit is maybe the same one that chases all of us. It's the fact that we rely on ourselves. The Bible calls this self-righteousness, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I want us today to understand God's grace that he had for Jonah. Because if you, if you get grace, if you understand grace, everything begins to change in your life. As a matter of fact, there's a verse in, in Colossians that talks about how the, the Spirit will bear fruit in you as you understand grace and truth. As you see grace, your life begins to change. As you understand how much God has done for you, your life will begin to be shaped in a new way. The hard part about grace is that we all want it for ourselves, but it's difficult to give to others. Grace is something that, if you truly have tasted it, it changes the way you view other people. And, and it changes what you understand about sin. Jonah, Jonah's sin was what we would call extreme. He ran the opposite direction from God. And I don't know if you're like me at all, but it's easy for me to look at the sin of others and to say, man, that sin is bad. I, I can't believe they would do that. Every time we say those words, feel those thoughts, we're, we're illustrating. We should be seeing ourselves waving a flag saying, I'm not believing God's grace for me if I can't trust God's grace for them. There, there is no sin so small in life that it does not merit total damnation and separation from God. Now you're like, this sounds very hellfiery. I need you to hear the other side of that coin. There is no sin so big that God's grace and forgiveness cannot set you free from it. There's a, um, there's this idea with God's grace, because Jonah here is here, he's in the whale because he didn't want to preach forgiveness to the Ninevites. Jonah looked at them and said, they are not worthy, so I'm going to run because of their unworthiness. There's this idea that God is trying to squeeze into Jonah, quite literally, that, that God's plan for giving mercy and salvation is more important than Jonah's racism, is more important than Jonah's religious superiority. And he was trying to teach in this belly, he was trying to teach a wayward prophet what grace truly is. Some of you may feel like you're being punished in the pit. Some of you feel like maybe I'm here because of bad decisions. And let's be honest, some of you are here in your current state of life because of bad choices and decisions. Some of you are not, and we see both examples in the Bible. Jonah made bad choices, and he was swallowed by a fish. But we also see people like Joseph, who was simply unliked by his brothers and thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. And God raised him up to second in command in all of Egypt. We also see people like Daniel, who was t taken away by the Babylonian uh, takeover, conquest, and Daniel was just a child. He was, uh, Israel was being punished for the sins of the parents at that point. Yet Daniel remained faithful. No matter how you got into the pit that you are in, no matter how you got into this dark valley that you find yourself in, whether it's the darkest you've ever been in or just a bad season of life, I need you to understand that until you get the grace of God, until you understand that it is all a gift, it will become nearly impossible to walk in peace and joy. You'll be trying to claw your way out 
And it's natural. It's human instinct. But if you can, in the midst, like Jonah did, find that God is actually trying to do something good in your life, everything will begin to change. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, gives thanks. In verse 9, he says, but with the voice of thanksgiving. How many of you are giving thanks in your pain? You may think, why would God send a fish to swallow Jonah? Some of you um, don't like the ocean. I was talking to one of the brothers at Band of Brothers yesterday. He will not go into the ocean for anything, which makes me want to really take him into the ocean. Um, because sharks, right? How Any shark phobia people here? Sharks are very kind, just so you know. You've all been brainwashed by Jaws. Although, if a shark bites you, you will die, okay? Um, I, I love swimming with sharks. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, on my honeymoon, I grabbed a, a black tip reef shark by the tail. Um, when I lived in Hawaii, I would go down and we knew where these sharks were, would sleep. And if you've never se seen a shark sleep, it's so eerie because they sleep. Um, you, do you know how like at a certain age, people start sleeping with their eyes open? You know how that happens, right? Like just like think grandma's grandpa's, all of a sudden they're with you and they look like this. And then they're not with you and they still look like this. And you do that. This is what sharks sleep like. And I, I remember um, the first time that I was in front of a shark bigger than me. And that's a, that's a pretty fairly big shark. And um, I was swimming down. And this is with a, just a mask and a snorkel. And I'm swimming down. I'm like, okay, I know there's a shark around here somewhere. They told me there's a shark in the waters. I'm excited. And, uh, and before I go, because I'm still like, I'm not dumb. I make sure I have no major cuts. I'm not going to go pee in the water because allegedly they're attracted to that. I'm not giving them any bait, okay? Um, but I swam down, and it was about 20, 25 feet down. And there was this outcropping of like lava tunnel. And I went down, and as I come under, I look up. And I was much, much closer than I had anticipated to be uh, to a shark's face, because I knew the shark was in the area, and I know they kind of duck and hide or whatever, and I was about, if this is the shark's face, like this close, but I didn't know the shark was there, because my head was coming over a rock that was right here, until right about there, and the shark's mouth was slightly agape, and I thought, in my pastoral brain, I'm about to get partially jonah this is it. And that is worse than being fully Jonahed. Partially Jonahed. Um, the shark didn't move. I just fluttered back gently, and I just admired as I was running out of oxygen because I was holding my breath doing this. And uh, we ended up going up and down, up and down to just look at this amazing shark, not even realizing, not even having the temerity to think like, the shark has no way out except for the way we're blocking so if he does wake up, we are getting Jonah, partially Jonah. And, and as I sat there, though, and I, I just kept looking, I was so fascinated. I was so fascinated by this shark. I thought the same thing you would think. This shark could eat me. This shark could bite me. This shark could just swim away. And, and in case you're wondering, like, was I following safety precautions? Of course. I had a knife on my calf. I had a spear in my hand. I think I could take a seven or eight foot shark, no big deal, right? And by the way, next service, because I'm also a fisherman, it's gonna be a nine to 10 foot shark. That's how this story works, okay? Um, but, but I began to understand something as I was looking at this amazing 
creature. And, and many of the amazing creatures I've, I saw mostly in Hawaii. I've, I've swum uh, with whale sharks and done these incredible things just in the wild. And you begin to feel how small you are. You begin to feel how helpless you are. And it, it creates something in you. When you understand that you can't do anything, it, if that shark wants you, it is game over. If that, if that whale shark wants to bump into you or grab your arm and swim a direction, it is over. There were even manta rays big enough to take me out. And when you begin to feel that sense of lack of strength, that total inability, that total weakness, and you're totally dependent on something else to make you live through any situation, if you depend on God and God enters into your life, that is what we call grace. The fact that some of you are alive today is a gift of God. I'm saying this not because of statistics. I'm saying this because I know some of you, and some of you have made some crazy choices. Those of you who are of the hillbilly redneck variety, it's amazing that you have survived without blowing yourself up. The reason we don't have 4th of July parties at the chapel anymore is because my first year here, we had a team of people setting off fireworks just at a lake over in that neighborhood uh, turn something. It's a nice neighborhood, you know, expensive houses. And they were far away in a lake, but they were on the other side. And I saw one of those big commercial fireworks explode about 15 feet off the ground. Just right over a team of like seven guys or whatever we had over there. And I yell over, is anyone dead? And they say, we're all good. And in my head, I'm thinking, just like an executive pastor, this is an insurance nightmare. How are these people still alive? When my mailbox was getting run over, people said, you know what we're going to do? Pastor, we're going to keep your mailbox safe. We're going to put two by fours with nails in front of your mailbox because someone keeps running it over. And we're going to sit in the tree above your mailbox with guns. And I'm like, I live in an HOA community. They'll never see us. And the per person that told me that, I'm like, dude, you are 300 pounds. It's a 10-year-old oak tree. It's going to slingshot you out of there. But God's grace lets some of us live. Foolish young men who dive with sharks, people who blow things up. But some of us aren't living in the, the truest sense of the word. We've been stuck in a bad place, and we've accepted the belly of the fish because we don't want to receive grace. We don't want to believe that we can be completely helpless, that our sin has got us in such a bad predicament that there is no way out. That's the first thing to receive in grace. If you want to receive grace, that w the grace is that perfect acceptance that you are weak and small and helpless and you need God and God will step in and give you himself. So how do you receive it? You receive it when you understand it because, like I said, Colossians 1.6 is the verse the gospel which has come to you is bearing fruit and increasing since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The good news comes to you as you understand that you are vastly more sinful than you ever imagined and God is vastly more holy than you ever knew, yet he closes the chasm. And, and to illustrate this, uh, there are three kinds of people. I love the three kinds of people because you all know there's going to be like generally a religious guy, an irreligious guy, and then a gospel-centered Jesus person. But might throw you for a curveball today. So there's three kinds of people in this world when it comes to receiving God's grace. The first, people who have so low a view of their sin that they cannot grasp grace. 
they don't see that their sin is a big deal. They, they, don't, they don't see themselves as spiritual failures. They don't like punishment. They say, I'm a good person. I'm, I'm better than someone else. That's the first type of person. In, in this type of person, if you make light of your sin, if your sin is only just a kind of bad thing, you will never see your need for God's grace. In order to understand that you need God's forgiveness, you have to see sin for what it is. It is an eternal offense towards an infinite being. And the second type of person, people who have a low view of God's mercy. You don't believe God's mercy is big enough to love you in your mess. You think, I've walked too bad a path. I've gone too far down that road. These are the people who know that they fail. They know that they need charity, but they stay in their condition, saying, I need to get my act together. Or a very uh, popular adage, God only helps those who help themselves. Just a side note, that's not in the Bible. God only helps those who are helpless. God isn't waiting for you to crawl yourself up to a certain point. It's not like God's hand is partway down a cliff and he says, if you can just make it up to me, then I'll be able to grab you. No, God says, you can't make it up. My grace and mercy will come down. And then there's a third type of person. People who see the depths of their sin and evil in their life, but they also simultaneously to seeing the depths of sin, they see the heights of God's mercy and grace for weary people like you and me. Those are the people that it's like a chemical reaction. Um, I'm so into documentaries all the time. I love it. Um, my kids are into trying these new experiments because my kids watch kids' YouTube and I watch documentaries. I've never tried the Mentos Diet Coke thing, but it's on my agenda for this week. I'm going to get a Mentos, blow it up, see if it works. It, it will. I've seen it on the YouTubes. Um, but more fascinating to me, uh, there's this beetle. Have you guys seen the flame-throwing beetle? It's a magical thing. This beetle has two chambers inside of its little beetle butt. And they are two separate chemicals, and they are separated by a, a little uh, partition inside of the beetle. And when the beetle is being threatened, it aims its rear at someone else. It's much like middle school um, banter. And it, it fires both chemicals. Both chemicals that live within the beetle that exist only a fraction apart from each other inside this tiny beetle's membranes. And when these two chemicals connect outside of the beetle bottom, it turns into God's natural flamethrower of death. If you've never seen this, you've got to Google this. Just go Google beetle flamethrower buttocks or something like that, okay? And, and it's it's amazing when those two chemicals hit, it changes everything. This beetle can walk around all day. You can flick it. It won't explode. But as soon as it chooses to shoot both chemicals together, there's a fire that happens. Though that same type of reaction is what you have to get. It's a terrible illustration. But with God's grace, the highness of God's mercy and grace, and the lowness of your sin, if you don't combine those two, you will ultimately fail and understanding what it is you need from God and how to receive grace. You cannot receive grace until you realize your deep need for grace. And you cannot receive grace if you don't think that God is big enough, powerful enough, loving enough to give you his grace. It's not just enough to look at the depths of your sin, because then you'll just beat yourself up. You, you must see how much you need God. And you must see how much God will show up for you. And he doesn't put you in the belly because he's mad at you. He doesn't put you in the position to need grace. Like, like Jonah, he had Jonah swallowed up, and you would think that just seems cruel and, and terrible. 
But for any of you who have loved somebody, you know that the person that you love the most is also the person that if they go down a bad path, if they make a wrong decision, if they make a bad choice, you, you hate that action even more. We don't care as much when someone does something terrible if they're removed from you. If they're two, three people removed, like, oh, that's terrible, they shouldn't have done that. If your son or daughter or, or husband or wife or, ch- or, or, or friend, deep friend, best friend, if they do something that is breaking their life apart, if they're doing something that you see, like they're doing this action, this choice, and it's making them spiral downward, you get so mad at them. You get so furious. And you say, why are you letting your life go down to the pit? And you want to shake them and, and, and lift them up. This is what God does with us. Not because he's mad, but because he wants us to see his radical, infinite grace. So how do you know? How do you know that the grace of God is in your life? First one, the, the first point, you become driven by gratitude. Jonah prayed and gave thanks in the fish. He, he said, thank you, Lord, for being my God. He said, thank you, and I will sacrifice to you. I think that's an amazing thing, gratitude. If you cannot give gratitude for where you are, whether it's good or bad, you need a course on grace. You need an understanding of God's grace. The next thing that happens, if you want to know if God's grace in your life is in your life, you will lose all cynicism about other people because the Bible says salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah says that that I'm not going to try to be the dispenser of salvation. I'm not going to run from Nineveh because salvation is God's to give, not mine. Jonah in this belly of the fish was realizing something very, very incredible. Um, he, pointed, he points in his prayer to the holy temple. And if, unless you're Jewish, you, you might not get this. And even now, if you are Jewish, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant is, is long lost. And the temple used to have this seat called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was where the priests would go and they would sprinkle the blood of a dead animal. An animal killed to be a substitute for your sin. They would sprinkle this blood on the mercy seat. And so Jonah, when he's praying, God, help me to look to your holy temple. I look to your holy temple. God, I need you to show up. But not only that, specifically Jonah's saying, God, I need you to be merciful. Because the holy temple was the place where the mercy seat was covered in blood. Jonah was before Jesus entered into history. Before Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. But Jonah was looking forward to mercy. He was saying, God, I need a way out of this. And it's so amazing because Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 40, refers to Jonah. Says that just like Jonah was in the fish for three days, so I will be in the, the ground for three days. Jesus was the sacrifice that Jonah longed for. Jesus was the blood that was cast upon your life for all time, not just on the mercy seat once per year. Jesus is the one to whom salvation belongs. Jesus is the one who went into the pit, the worst pit of sin and death, so that you would never have to go there. All you need do is come to God and accept the gift of grace by faith. Jesus is the one who says, I will suffer and endure. I will be mocked. I will be in pain. I will be betrayed. All things common to the human experience. And I will do these things so that those who come to me and call me by my name will never be forever mocked, 
betrayed, abandoned. Those who are drawn in and believe in my name will never be forgotten. Those who call upon me will have a purpose and meaning that transcends the stuff of this life. And that's where Jonah's prayer was heading. If you want to know that you have God's grace in your life, you, you'll be grateful for all that God has done for you. You'll be grateful that like Jonah, God has taken your eyes off of what Jonah calls vain idols, things that try to substitute and replace God in your life. And you, you've fixed your eyes on the, the living God. And in that moment of being so grateful for that, your cynicism will dissolve. You won't any longer say things like this, um, how, how can I need forgiveness as much as that person? Anyone played the compare game lately? I'm not as bad as them, therefore God must love me. Or let me put it in an easier way to say, um, have you ever, we've, we've done this recently, have you ever looked down your nose at somebody in judgment? This is we, where an, a lack of understanding of God's grace comes from. If you don't get God's grace, you'll look down at someone and say, they are not worthy. If you get God's grace, you say, hey, I must look a lot worse to God than they look to me because the chasm between me and God is high. Yet God still loves me, so I can still love them because salvation is of the Lord. If you've never received this grace, if you've never understood this grace, if you've never understood the idea that God will bring us into the pits sometimes because he's trying to teach us about his radical love for you, if you've never gotten that, if you're here, maybe you've been a church person your whole life, but you constantly have this cynical look upon others, looking at the worst, assuming the worst. It may be because there's an area of grace that you have not been gripped by. Grace is like walking into a beautiful mansion, and salvation is that first moment where, where God unlocks and opens the door and welcomes you home. Christianity does not end with that entrance into grace. Christianity is a life of not buckling down and figuring out how everything works, but of going through and exploring this infinite, endless experience of God's grace. And it's just when you've thought you've explored every room, there's another room and another wing of God's grace, and He will open the doors and welcome you home. And as that happens, your gratitude will rise and rise and rise, and your cynicism and judgment toward others will lower and lower and lower, because how glorious it is that God would love someone like me. Of course, he can love anyone, no matter what they've done, no matter who they've been. That's the offer of God's grace this morning. I pray you would receive it. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you have brought me into and out of dark places, pits, difficulties, trials, and I'm thankful. I pray that we, like Jonah, would become thankful Despite what he does in the coming chapters, Lord, help us today in this moment to understand that grace is free, that we get it by embracing the good news of Jesus, that we are worse than we thought we were, yet your love overcomes if we place our faith in you. And help us, God, to show the signs of that externally, to see the best in others, to, to always hope, to never be hopeless, and to have lives of radical gratitude where nothing can shake us, where no broken relationship can knock us off our feet, Lord, because we stand not on 
relationships. We stand not on finances. We stand not on success or achievements. We stand on you and you alone. Thanks for being our Father. In Jesus' name, all God's kids said, amen. Uh, at this time, the ushers are going to come forward. Um, I asked to do the offering this week because, as always in the summer, um, summer times people go on vacations and vacate. I just wanted to encourage you, if you consider this chapel your family, if this is your church home, um, I would encourage you to pray about how much um, you give to God for the ministries that are done here. Um, we are always, we have been growing financially healthy, uh, healthier over the years, but every summer is always lean. So if, if that is you, if you're a chapel family and you have never given, I would encourage you to pray. Thank you for those of you who give online. If that is easier for you, I know that my wife and I, it is way easier to give right on our phones. We just hop online, hit the give button, uh, and it goes that way. We appreciate your generosity, um, and we are looking forward to doing more things as we move into fall. So if you are a chapel family, thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have uh, never given and have questions about giving, feel free to come ask me. Um, we always do an end-of-year um, financial statement as a chapel, as an organization. We put everything out there. Every January, you get to see every dollar we spend on, on, what, on toward what it goes. You know what my salary is. You know what the building costs. You know what the every, all the expenses of the ministries cost. So we, we try to be above board in every way possible, and we appreciate your giving. And I would just encourage you, uh, if you have not been a, a regular giver to the chapel, to experience the grace of what it means to support God's work uh, through a local church. Uh, let me pray for the offering, and then Jared will come up with some announcements. Father, as we give to you, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy, that, that none would give under compulsion, but that we would all give in response to how much you have given us in Christ. So help us, Lord, to, as a staff and, and leadership, to maximize every dime, as we have done, to stretch it out, to make ministry happen, to bring hope to the hopeless, to bring, to bring sight to those who need to see your good news to bring freedom to those who are held captive by addictions and pain and brokenness. God, bless this offering. Multiply it. Make us all faithful with it. In the name of Christ. Amen.